Hi, everyone, and welcome to How the Light Gets In, where we seek to have conversations that crack through the dark. I'm Haven, and I'm really happy you're here. I consent and... to be recorded. <laughs> <laughs> By clicking yes. Right. <laughs> no, I do not want to be recorded. I only signed up for a podcast. Um, <laughs> my guest today, and this is very, it's a wild day today because I recorded two of these today. So that's a lot, <laughs> but they're both good. So my guest today is my brother, uh, Josh, and who is just fantastic and uh, well, I love him. He's my brother. He's cool. Um, so thanks for, for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And likewise, love you too, both because you are my sister brother sibling, and that is, you know, inherent unconditional love right there, but also because you're awesome too. So well, right back at you. Well, thank you. So the question that I always start these these out with is how are you doing how's life and everything and you know this is a similar to you um this has been a this has been a week this has been a month you know there's just been a lot for for a while now just things up in the air and things just coming at me from all directions but i am I am here and surviving in uh, a more than the sort of base level, which is which is nice. I wouldn't say thriving, but surviving. And I'm, I'm feeling pretty good today because I actually managed to sleep more than a small number of hours. <laughs> uh, that does always help. I unfortunately did not... Uh, managed to sleep a more than a small number of hours uh which would have helped with a lot of things today i think but <laughs> you know i was dealing with time zones and all that so um i don't really have so i have a lot that i would like to talk to you about <laughs> um as i mentioned you are my brother uh <laughs> I don't really have an agenda uh, necessarily for this, you know, interview. Just really wanted to talk to you because uh, I feel like I don't know you as much as my other siblings, which is odd given that, you know, we're related and all that. But, you know, I was quite young. I think when you college and, you know, abroad and things like that, which love that for you so much, <laughs> like you seem to have done really well with that, but I just, I feel like I miss. So now we're catching up in an hour. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say we have an hour to cover what? 15 years, 12 years, that should be totally doable. 
but yeah, real talk, you know, um, family means a lot of things. It means whatever we want it to mean. And also it means what other people tell us it should mean. And we're constantly trapped between those two poles or trapped isn't the right word. We're, we're orbiting these two poles. Uh, yeah. I always like the, I always like the metaphor of the, you know, I'm not an astronomer. So this is like purely metaphor. It's just for the image, which I find provocative, but you know, the binary star system, it's like two stars orbiting each other. And sometimes planets orbit two stars that are orbiting each other and things get weird. Um, those, those orbits then look all kinds of ways. And I think it's, it's similar with, you know, we find family, we choose family, we're born into family and those don't always align as neatly as it seems like they might. Um, and, you know, yeah. since we've gotten real, um, a lot of why I have, a lot of why you and I, for example, are not closer and just don't know as much about each other, about what's going on in each other's lives or, or who we are at this point uh, is because I spent so many years running from what I thought family had to mean and the ways that, you know, family wasn't even the only thing that was that was part of the the equation. It's like, I don't even know if this is, you know, my limited ast uh, astronomy knowledge is already running out. We're like, you know, imagine they're like five stars orbiting each other and that poor little planet doesn't know what to do. Um, I think that was another part of it too, of just um, growing up in the specific kind of religious environment that we were both in, um, growing up in the specific parts of the country that we were in, uh, growing up in the specific part of the world that we were in, you know, like we were, we were in a weird place in the United States, but the United States is a weird place in the world um, and so on and so forth. They're just, you know, I, I think I didn't even understand when I left like that I was running. I thought I was moving towards something that was bigger and better um, just because it was different. And it's taken me now, you know, a good decade of time uh, to do the hard inner work to be like, wait, what, what was I actually doing there? I didn't like that. I didn't even know I was doing at that time and still don't fully understand now, but all that to say, that's my, that's my sort of long riff off of like, yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. That does make a lot of sense. I think, um, well, hearing you say that, um, cause yeah, family is weird. And I mean, there are very like traditional kind of ideas of like, this is what family has to mean, which I think gets stuck a lot. <laughs> and so when that doesn't necessarily fit, then that's rough <laughs> and like, and yeah, would make sense that um, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't try to put it on. <laughs> yeah, then the or like the shoe doesn't fit, but that's because it's an oven mitt. I was putting it on the wrong part of my body. Yeah. That, Sorry, you're in that. front of some kitchen stuff. So that, you know, <laughs> my visual metaphor for folks who are not seeing what I'm seeing. <laughs> <laughs> that that actually fits a lot better like that this I wasn't even putting this on the right the right part of my body that it was supposed to be on so I thought it was wrong but <laughs> that that's really good 
Yes, the gay mug. <laughs> yes, I had to see which side I was showing you. <laughs> there are two sides. There's, and then taste the rainbow and yeah, the equality and the rainbow all, heart. Yeah, and it's all gay. Which it's all fitting. gay. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it makes me wonder. Um, if you're comfortable sharing this, like you mentioned a lot of things just like not fitting really being one of the reasons why you didn't feel comfortable, which totally understandable. Again, not really having the context and wanting to understand, wondering if we could, you know, go into some of that, like, what are what were those things? Yeah, definitely. So I think a lot of it does have to do with the particular ways that I experienced religion in relation to our immediate family, you know, mom and dad both being pastors at our churches our entire lives. You know, that mm -hmm. was that was the whole that was the whole of my family experience was totally tied up in the kind of the specific kind of Pentecostal evangelical Christianity that we yeah. were that we were moving through at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that being also in the very rural kinds of contexts that we were in uh, with the specific ethno-racial dynamics, like different ethnicities, different races, uh, different linguistic dynamics, I think all of these were sort of folded in together where I just didn't really know how to separate my, my personal identity from the kind of religious context that we were in, from the kind of rural context that we were in. Um, and it all just kind of felt like one big knot. There was mm -hmm. just one coherent thing that I didn't know which parts of it I didn't like, but I also didn't have the tools to untie that knot that it was just one one big entity that was you know it was it was tying me down and i just needed to get rid of all of it that i wanted to uh get as far away oh and did i mention being queer but not even really knowing what that meant and not even really um accepting that for myself like you know there, there there's layers right there's layers upon layers yeah and all of it was kind of working together in ways that that i didn't understand um, and I didn't understand um, how the different aspects of, of things were affecting me in different ways, some of which compounded each other, some of which um, lessened each other. Like, you know, there, it's, it's kind of in all different directions. Um, and I just didn't have tools at the time for thinking about my own social and emotional health, my own um, social and emotional experience, and just like the, the way that I experienced my own body and mind, um, the way that I experienced my, my place in different kinds of social structures and institutions, uh, whether that's like, you know, institutions. I will also add, um, I am an anthropologist. I'm currently uh, in the middle of like, teaching a lot and so I slip into my like lecturer mode too easily um so apologies in advance to both to you Haven and to and to listeners I mean I love it I don't and not that I don't care what other people are thinking but I love it so go, go on. <laughs> but also we don't care audience what's that who's that I don't know her 
Um, yeah, so I think that the so institutions not just meaning things like schools and churches, but also meaning things like the family as a kind of institution, a particular kind of social institution, uh, sexuality as an institution, um, but also something that is very individually felt and very particular and and fluid and specific like specific to the individual, etc. Um, I just didn't have I just didn't have tools for navigating all of those things for myself um, or even like at the at the very base level of like accepting that I could have feelings and that I could have anything more than just sort of rational thoughts about what was going on. Um, as I already alluded to, I, I am a very intellectual person and I was very good for most of my life at just rationalizing things away and sort of making up explanations that that were effective for me because they worked so well internally. Um, but as I love to tell students and anyone who will listen, like internal coherence is not necessarily truth. You know, something might fit together really well on its own terms of like the components that, that it's made of. And then when we actually start to say, okay, but like what, what's, what's going on in the world or what's going on in my own life? Like, what do I actually do? Does that really nice, coherent thing actually even describe me and my own behaviors and my own experiences? Um, and so I think that was sort of, again, I'm, I'm talking in like really abstract terms, but it was just like, I didn't, I didn't know which parts of the things were, were actually harming me, which things I wasn't comfortable with. Um, and I didn't even really know that that was something that I could understand more mm -hmm. than just like, you know, oh, that's all bad. Let me run away from the whole, the whole damn thing. Yeah, for sure. I can relate to that, that I think um, a lot of, I mean, for me, what I experience as, I feel like it probably comes from the um, very like evangelical Christianity kind of um, perspective of like, feelings, don't listen to those. Um, which to an extent, I mean, feelings aren't facts, clearly. And I, I have experienced that, like, that does do some shit to, like, say, just don't, no, they are not, don't listen to them, don't, you know, none of that, they're not there. It's like, mm, but they are, though. <laughs> Yeah, right. Like, like the feeling, the specific feelings are too much for me. So now it's like, I, I reject the whole thing. I'm, I, I don't even have feelings. Feelings? What? Yeah, exactly. Then I feel like, you know, really goes into a lot of feelings of like, well, I have feelings, but I'm not supposed to have feelings, but I do have feelings. So what now? <laughs> and so that's, yeah, really confusing and hard dealing with what you were, like all the things that you were mentioning, like feelings about like what family means, being queer, which is one that I can really relate to a lot. Uh, <laughs> Rainbow Mug. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it just, it's not 
helpful a lot of the time to be like, yeah, don't listen to feelings. They're not real. It's like, then how do I figure anything out? <laughs> kind of. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, there is, speaking of culture and society, there's like a lot of, there's a lot to, uh, just a lot of weight and baggage to the ways that we that we're taught to think about what feelings are and the ways that feelings are always um, talked about as something that are inherently opposed to rational thought, for example. Um, no coincidence that feelings are historically a thing that get attributed to women um, or to femme people or, or women presenting people in the world um, and used as a way to dismiss and denigrate and, and frankly to just oppress and be violent toward those people. Mm -hmm. uh, feelings are attributed to children um, and young people as if they they just they have too many feelings and that's what's wrong with them. And that's a reason to oppress and marginalize children and young people. And, you know, it's just, it's men or masculinity or, or maskness is associated with rational thought and systematization. And those are good things. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's just this whole, it's a whole interconnected web and the outputs are pretty violent every time. Yeah. <laughs> I was, yeah, um, that's so true that, like, I mean, it really is, like, a societal thing that I I feel like um, evangelicalism makes worse to a point, but um, I think it is just, like, society in general is, like, feelings go with femme people. <laughs> And children, which are like less than. And then goes to we don't associate feelings with masked people. And then they have those feelings, and we just shut it down. You're not supposed to have that. <laughs> You're proving us all wrong, but it's not our fault that we're being proven wrong right now, it's your fault for being you. <laughs> yep, yeah, the policing masculinity, whether that's like telling boys to don't have feelings, don't cry, be a man, you know, be strong. Um, and then also along with that, the, the fact that women and femme folks are constantly recruited to do emotional labor for an entire group of people who are told that like they, they are inherently rational. And then there's this whole, all of this work that gets put into making that seem true. That like when they do have feelings, because of course we're all people, we're all human. Um, and those feelings happen. And then there's all of this work to be like, oh, no, no, I see you're having feelings like that's going that's an inherent threat to who you are. But that's also then inviting me to perform labor to maintain this facade and this structure that ultimately oppresses me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's wild, but also so fascinating. And I think why we both are like super into like social sciences and things like that. It's like humans what the hell <laughs> yeah absolutely um it struck me that it might 
uh, be relevant to do a quick rundown of like various things. You know, I'm I'm a lot of things are coming to mind, and I'm just like, oh, I should probably just like say who who some of the labels that I that I have that yes. might help make sense of some of the the ridiculous things that I'm about to say <laughs> that I think are not not actually ridiculous, but but might seem like a total non sequitur otherwise. I currently work as a, so my official job title at the moment is lecturer in colonizations and linguistics at the University of Chicago. Um, I'm affiliated with a department called Race, Diaspora, and Indigeneity, uh, but also the Department of Linguistics. Um, so basically what that means is that I, I teach and I also am nominally supposed to be doing research, although the, the, you know, these two things are in competition with each other for my time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's sort of the, what I do right now. Uh, my PhD is, well, I have a PhD in sociocultural and linguistic anthropology, um, so two different subfields of the discipline of anthropology, which is just focused largely on the study of what it means to be human, um, past and present. And then I always add the future as well, past, present, and future, um, because we are also moving into the future and we think and talk about the future and make plans for the future. And, you know, we're we're very future-oriented beings, even if we also are, you know, grounded in the past and history and we exist in the present. Mm -hmm. Um, I have gotten my bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctorate degree at the University of Chicago. So I've been at the same institution for all of my higher education experience, um, which is, it's a wild ride unto itself. Um, I will say, I don't regret any of the degrees that I've gotten or the learning or experiences that, that I've had along the way. Um, but the, the best education that I received was not from the institution, even if it was sort of uh, provoked by the institution in a lot of cases. Um, a lot of it happened in uh, different kinds of venues and, and through different kinds of relationships that uh, were often connected to the the place where I was actually going to school, um, but in many ways um, were going really far beyond what I was expected to do in my sort of status or capacity as a student. Um, I've done a lot of work in labor organizing and abolitionist organizing, anti-racist organizing um, in Chicago. Um, through groups that I got connected to and was in touch with because they were also made up mostly of students, if not entirely of students at the University of Chicago. Um, But that work was always much more important to me and had much bigger impact and uh, was much more in line with my values than often what was happening in the more sort of uh, academic spheres of my life. So all that to say, I I really... um, most of the things that I valued most in my education were were sort of working against what I was being taught or expected to do mm-hmm. um, in my my degree programs themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a, um, a fair amount of non-academic work experience in things like marketing, communications, 
graphic and visual design, brand design. Um, I worked for a while in arts administration. I worked for a while um, as a uh, brand director at a mental health nonprofit. Um, and then I have spent a significant amount of time living and working and doing research in Southeast Asia, uh, mostly Singapore, also the Philippines, Malaysia. Um, yeah, so there, there's a lot to potentially unpack and dive into. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, and time's up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, like I said earlier, that this, I, it's really interesting because I feel like I know you as my brother and, you know, person I'm related to and love and I'm getting to know now. And then, you're, uh, and yet you're listing off all these things like, oh, I didn't know any of that, which is, I just feel like is a really weird place to be in, I guess. It, anyway, I had a question that I was going to ask about. Oh, yeah. And I think we've talked about this um, just personally, but I find it interesting. The question being, how, have you... Like, have you found slash how have you or how has it been learning like anthropology specifically? And like, so given the way that we were both raised, I guess, and not really like, and as you were saying, like the experience of kind of of wanting to get away from that but then also not knowing what you were trying to get away from in a way um how did that go into your decision to you know learn anthropology because i found that studying things like that when you're trying to figure it out in yourself that is really helpful yeah thanks i so what's funny is i am constantly in situations or spaces where i have to give coherent narratives for how everything was this sort of intentional agentive decision that i made and like all the pieces fit together <laughs> um i really i found i i ended up in anthropology kind of by accident okay. um it turned out not to really be by accident, but I um, I never set out to do anthropology. Okay. Um, and I even saying that I, I also want to like, this is, this is a narrative that a lot of people have. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that there are, there are lots of flavors that it, that it comes in. I came to college at University of Chicago intending to do something, well, I was intending to do bio pre-med, meaning mm -hmm. I wanted to be a medical doctor. That was something that I thought I wanted to be in life, um, which again was in part shaped by um, the kind of upbringing that we had where, you know, we were, we were 
quite poor, actually. Mm. And there's a common intergenerational dynamic where, you know, education gets seen, especially in um, the generations that are immediately coming out of or that are able to finally step out of poverty. Uh Um, which again, systemic, not individual. It's not like you decide to step out of poverty. It's like when you have the opportunity, when the conditions are working to make it so that's possible for you, um, then it often leads to professions. Like what I'm going to do is become a doctor, a lawyer, um, an accountant, something with, you know, it's it's a professional title that has been around for a long time. There's a name. We know what that work entails, or at least we think we know. Um, and most importantly, it has a, a, a really nice big salary number attached to it. Um, so it's partly uh, because it was the, the most prestigious and attainable and well-paid thing I could imagine. Um, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, like a medical doctor. I quickly realized at the University of Chicago that um, the science classes that I'd taken in high school had not prepared me at all for the kind of things I was expected to do um, at the university level, especially one where um, there it is very cutthroat and unforgiving in that once you're behind, you're behind forever. Um, and once you start failing, um, there there is no, there is really no um, support system to prevent that from happening. Like by mm-hmm. the time you're you're failing your core bio class, which I was, um, that's taken as a sign that you're not good enough, not a sign that, um, you know, the teaching could be improved or also that like, I actually don't want to do this. Right. It was, it was sort of reflected back on me. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't ultimately fail. Thank God. Um, but I think it was early on, um, it signaled to me that like I needed to pick a different path um, because this was going to continue happening. And sure, maybe I could end up being a doctor, but the other layer being I I was used to being a high achieving academic, like Mm -hmm. school was very easy for me up until that point, like Mm -hmm. not, not easy, easy, but it felt like it came more naturally. And suddenly the things I was being asked to do and the background knowledge that I was assumed to have um, wasn't, like it wasn't as intuitive Mm -hmm. and I was constantly feeling like I was in over my head that led me to then sort of you know I I let go of that dream and was both sort of terrified and excited by the possibilities where it's like well this means I could do anything but what like how do I choose then right like before there was one answer and now there are you know 200 majors I could pick to say nothing of the combinations. I could have two majors. I could have three majors. I could have majors and minors. I could, you know, um, it, it was exciting. Um, and so I sort of went all over the place. I um, went into linguistics and philosophy. I went into ethnomusicology for a while. Um, I went into um, gender and sexuality studies. Um, I, what else? There, there were a few others, uh, global studies, Um, it was just kind of, it was kind of all over the place in part because I, I realize now that there were different aspects of who I am and how I identify and the things I was trying to make sense of for myself that I felt like I was finding 
not necessarily answers, but exciting, exciting possibilities in all of these places. Like I took a gender and sexuality studies class and was like, oh, wow, like the world of gender and sexuality is way more complicated than even the version of like complicated that I had come to accept at that point. Like, you know, like, yeah, sure. Queer people exist. Yeah. Like, you know, trans people exist, but also there's like this whole world of people who are not, you know, it's not that there's three categories instead of two. It's that like everything is a spectrum and like you get every shade in between. Um, mm -hmm. And that was exciting. That was exciting to imagine. Like, I don't, it's not that I get three categories to pick from is that I, I can, I can kind of do anything at all that, <laughs> that like feels like, it's going to work for me and that it's right for me and going to help me thrive and be, be, uh, be who I want to be and who, who I feel like I am mm -hmm. at least for now, you know? Um, and even that, like that final caveat being something that was sort of a whole new world of possibility that I, I can decide now and I can change my mind later because mm -hmm. I'm changing later. Like I'm, I'm growing and changing along the way too. Um, and so just having, having all of these kinds of, or like, you know, I, I have always been interested in language. I lived overseas for a couple of years before, or for a bit of time before going to college as well. Um, and sort of living in those environments where uh, I couldn't just rely on English to get by, like I could for the most part in the United States. Um, that Or like, again, with the caveat that being like we lived in a very um what we would call a hispanophone or spanish-speaking part of the united states and like you know yeah. so there again layers <laughs> um so i kept i was sort of going through all of these places and finding things that excited me and intrigued me um but also i just kept sort of running into different kinds of walls where it's like i i wanted to ask certain sorts of questions that either my instructors or other students majoring in those areas were not particularly interested in. Mm. Like I was learning about language, but I didn't care as much about linguistic structure. I cared about how people use language. Like what do people actually do with language and how does that work? And how does culture come into the picture? And how does history and social structure come into the picture? Um, and it's not that those were off limits. It's just that, that, you know, there was a little bit less interest in that kind of thing. I mean, in philosophy, not to dunk on the philosophers, but in philosophy, it was kind of summarily shut down. It's just like, no, we, we write example sentences and that's enough yeah. um <laughs> real world examples what um again hashtag not all philosophers um but the philosophers that that i i was working with um and so it was sort of you know i was i was going in all these directions i was finding things that excited me that opened up new worlds of possibility and then there were there were always sort of these these walls where it's like well but like that's not really an interesting question or like, well, but we know the answer. And I was like, well, but do we though? Um, and it was actually, I like to say now that I, I didn't find anthropology, I found people. That mm. I found specific people that were asking questions that excited me and were willing to entertain the questions I was asking and not just sort of like foreclose possibilities and say, oh, but we already know. Or like, don't ask that, you mm. know, which again, like, childhood family trauma religious trauma it's like you know the worst thing you can tell josh little josh back then or you know medium josh right now um is like don't ask that because it's just like well by god i will like right <laughs> how dare you and in fact i'll ask it more um <laughs> the contrarian in me um that's always well been there for a very long time mm. um so sort of finding people who are like 
yeah, let's let's ask that question and let's even go further than you're willing to go. Like you're asking that question, but that leads to another question that's even harder and weirder and more complicated. Um, and in fact, there are examples of people who live that way in the world. Like this thing that's this like thought experiment for you is actually the way that groups of people have organized their whole lives around for, mm -hmm. in some cases, a long period of time, some, piece, uh, some cases, a, a shorter period of time. But like, it's not just like, what if it's like, well, but like, let's, let's look like, let's ask what, what do they have to say about it? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was, that was what felt really exciting for me that there were um, bits and pieces of all of these other things that I had found along the way, but also that were, that I could engage in a way, um, at least with these specific people, like the specific folks that I found, um, I was able to engage with them and have those conversations and that they were they were encouraged and and pushed even further. Um, most of those people were not professors as well. They were they were other students that um, were some of the most exciting and and generous and just transformative interlocutors that I have had in my entire life and continue to be so. like they're, they're people that I'm still, connected to today. And so that was that was sort of how I ended up deciding I was going to major in anthropology. Mm. Um, speaking of institutions again, um, which I had mentioned earlier, it's like I, I did find that that wasn't the whole of the institution of anthropology, that there were mm. a lot of people that were more interested in maintaining the institution than necessarily asking interesting questions or encouraging exploration, um, that, there, that there was a right way to ask questions and there was a way to try and answer them, uh, a right way to try to answer them. Um, and so the majoring in anthropology, I think, tracked me in ways that I didn't quite understand at the time where I was, I was kind of being set up to get a PhD yeah. where like once, once I was in the middle of the institution, as it were, it's like the only thing that they, they could imagine as a path forward was, well, of course, like if you're, if you're interested in anthropology, you like it, if you're good at it, well, of course you're going to get a PhD because you want to one day become a professor. Um, and it felt nice to then have a concrete target again, where it's like, I, I knew there was something that I could move forward toward. It's like, okay, I gave up the dream of being a medical doctor, or, you know, there was a time when I thought I might be in international business or in international development, or, you know, there were, there were a lot of different possibilities that felt exciting along the way that then kind of disappeared as both I, you know, I found things that I didn't like about the, the explorations I was, I was getting myself into. Um, and also as I was sort of just like realizing that the world was bigger and more more exciting than than I had understood based on my current uh, current perspective or horizon. Um, but then it felt nice, especially at the end of college when it's like, oh no, I have to get a job, like I'm gonna graduate. Um, and not that you go straight into a professorship, but like it felt like that, that was a clear path that I was gonna I had to find a job, but it was really just going to be for a couple of years because grad school was on the horizon. Mm -hmm. um, again, it was actually, there was a, a legitimate question about whether I was going to go to grad school. Um, I had some really wonderful relationships with coworkers at the time where I was, I was able to, um, I was working in arts administration. Uh, there were a lot of really cool people who taught me a lot and were just really fun and 
showed me what it could look like to do something other than professional academia. Mm. Um, I still ultimately decided that I was going to pursue professional academia. Um, yeah, so, so all that to say, there's, um, I've gotten away from your original question, which is like anthropology, and now I'm sort of being like, what is my job and what will my next job be? Um, <laughs> but, you know, the two are not totally separate. No, no, no. Unsurprising, my, my unsurprising conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is really interesting hearing you talk about that. And it actually reminds me a lot of, I had someone on the podcast a little while ago, Naked Pastor, who's great human, love him so much. And um, a lot of what, like, what he was saying um, and applying to um, theology, I'm kind of seeing mirrored in, like, what you're saying about just, like, yes, ask questions, keep asking questions, like, there doesn't have to be a line of like, okay, we ask this question, then we stop. <laughs> because that's already been established. But it's like, but what if I don't want to go from just right here to right here? <laughs> just like, I want to go, I don't know where this is going to take me, but let's just keep going. Yeah, yeah. I so I did listen to that interview it was a really fun conversation and you know both in terms of like deconstruction doesn't have a stopping point yeah. like you can stop but it doesn't inherently have a stopping point you don't deconstruct now to find a new firm ground and that's where I like you know plant my fa uh, flag <laughs> pitch my tent and now I'm like you know this is where I live now like, mm -hmm. no, like we deconstruct to get somewhere else, but really just to figure out what we need to deconstruct next. Yeah. Exactly. I was just thinking about that while you were talking that like, this is something that I find really fascinating about both of those things. Like, you don't have to go from point A to point B because... You know, humanity's not like that. Like, real people are not like that. It's like, it's ask a question and go, kind of. Yeah. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, f I mean, it's just, it's so exciting for me to, like, I understand how that can be scary. And I'm not pretending that it's not scary because sometimes, yeah. you know, you ask a question and you're like, oh, no, if I have to deconstruct this, then that's like what does that leave me with? Yeah. Who, who am I? Like, especially once you start asking questions about things that feel like they're, they're necessary about yourself. Like, well, but mm -hmm. wait, what if, what if I'm not straight? <laughs> what if I'm, or, but even not, not just in terms of things that we think more firmly of as like identity, but like, you know, what if I'm not just gonna hop on this train and like write it to like, you know, medical doctor city, whatever, you know, like, what if, you know, now, now there's, I'm off that train, but like, I can get on any other train or no train. <laughs> like there's so many more trains now. And what the heck am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. Well, and to the, the point about anthropology as well, like this is, I think the other thing that um, excites me both about 
what I get to do in terms of like, you know, what, what my, what my work looks like, mm-hmm. like what I get to do in the day to day. But also just like in terms of things like teaching, um, in terms of things like the the research and writing that I get to do, it's like it's uh, we're not just dealing with hypotheticals. We're dealing with again, so like real people who really organize their lives in ways that are quite different from the one that we might be most familiar with. Yeah. Um, I really find this is it's always exciting in a classroom space, for example. Um, to, you know, we were just, um, I teach two classes right now, uh, one that's called Asia Pacific Colonizations, uh, one that is called Language, Gender, and Sexuality. Um, and the two go together in really complementary ways. Um, but I think to be able to, we were talking a lot about linguistic standards and like, what is a linguistic standard? Um, and the role of colonization in establishing the idea that that linguistic standards are necessary and not just that they are necessary for communication but that they're necessary to rank speakers and not just to rank speakers in terms of how proficient they are at speaking but in terms of their inherent worth as individuals and as groups it's like that's a lot of leaps um that we made from from this initial premise where it's like okay we are now in a part of the world where we haven't ever been before in this specific way. Like we showed up, we're establishing trade relations, we're establishing, you know, uh, a settler state, we're establishing plantations, we're, you know, whatever. We're doing a, a kind of a new thing. Mm. And this creates new communicative problems, but it's not just a communicative problem. It's also a problem of like, do these people have souls? Are they humans or are they animals? Like, are they like, how do you know, it, it produces new problems because you've, you've introduced a variable that they weren't willing to question. They weren't willing to question the idea that Europeans were inherently racially superior, for Mm -hmm. example, or that European languages weren't the best. Like it's sort of like, given that, the white race is the number one race. Like, how then do we talk to and govern these people? Right, right. And you're like, wait, but what if we undo that initial premise? Because right. that's new. <laughs> it's like, but what if plot twist? We're not. <laughs> right. And yes, plot twist. Um, and so then this led, sorry, I, I went off on that, that tangent, uh, but then this led to conversations about like, you know, so then what is a standard? A standard is a specific variety of a language that is spoken by a specific group of people in a specific place that then gets elevated to be the way that everyone has to speak. Mm-hmm. And also then gets turned and twisted into this thing of like, this is the right way to speak. It's not just the way that that group speaks. It's the way that this, this is the right form of the language. Um, it's like, okay, so once we accept like all of this is connected to colonialism, like, but we couldn't do anything else. Like, well, but actually, but actually my, my favorite slash least favorite, both academic and, um, professor thing to say, um, there are many languages that work just fine today without standards. Um, I gave the example in class this week of, um, a, language that's being revitalized in Singapore today, Kristang. Um, it's part of a series that I'm organizing. Uh, my friend Kevin Martins Wong um, is, I say friend, my, I, I hope we're going to be friends because he's one of the coolest people in the world, present company excluded. Um, and this is the language revitalization project where there is no standard. 
And that is intentionally so. They're revitalizing Kristang to not have standards because standards quickly turn into this effort to rank good and bad language, which then quickly turns into a, a project of ranking good and bad people. And they're doing it without. And it just sort of blows people's minds to be like, wait, that, that could happen? Surely that can't happen, but it's happening. <laughs> um, it, it, that is so fascinating and like really cool that he's doing that. Also makes me think about like, gosh, why do we do that? Just like, again, just be like, this is the good thing to do, which means this is the bad thing. And so, but why is that? It's, yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, and so the, the TLDR, Christianity, not... Mm -hmm. Christianity inherently, but the specific kind of Christianity that was happening in Western Europe at a specific time in human history was very interested in separating people into the saved and the unsaved, the Christians and the heathens. Um, and also that was not just sort of in the abstract. It was like, there are heathens, but there are also Jews and Muslims and they are, they are especially bad. Um, again, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm scare quoting for the people who are who are listening at home. <laughs> you know, this is this their their words, not mine. Um, so it's not that Christianity is inherently this project of ranking people in terms of good and bad. But again, there there was this this dovetailing of two things of like we're gonna rank people into the saved and the unsaved. But that matters for now. That's not just for the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is to come. That's for right now. Like that's how we treat people now. Mm. And then that became a really convenient justification for doing all kinds of other things that in many cases actually like flew in the face of what Christianity would otherwise suggest. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, all that to say like that, that's, it's the TLDR because there's so much nuance to that and there was no one form that this took, but like, right, right. There was a convenient justification for people who wanted to make that move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we were thinking the same thing, which like, I, when I brought up that thought is just like the thought of Christianity, like evangelical Christianity, whiteness, all those things being like the good standard. And then it's like, wait a minute, but that means people of color are bad. And queer people are bad, and probably women. <laughs> you know? And it's just, again, for anyone who is listening at home and cannot pick up my tone of voice, totally wrong. It's just fascinating to me, like that, that, um, that phenomenon of like this is right, which means all of these other things are wrong somehow. Yep. Uh, and right, layers, layers upon layers. Um, one of another good friend, Scott Jung, um, the coolest teacher I know, 
today, um, I learned everything I know from him, um, was a guest speaker in my language, gender, and sexuality class um, just yesterday. Um, and I think as a, you know, a perfect example of exactly the kind of, the kind of thing that we're talking about here and that you were just referencing where it's like, we started with this medical diagnostic test. And from there, we're able to spin off into all kinds of directions that like, you know, the idea that, um, brains have an inherent sex, male or female, there are two brains. Um, the idea that, we can study a limited range of physical variables and determine someone's, um, their, their character, their intelligence, um, and very quickly leads to this place of like, why in Europe were so many, uh, like, why were there witch hunts going on in Europe? Um, and it was always women, and it was always women who just so happened to be leading peasant uprisings. Um, but you know, it's not that the, the new capitalist system we're putting in place is bad. It's that they're women, they're witches, they're heathens, they're evil, they're bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it goes all the way to, you know, scientific debates, um, over like the, the taxonomy of living things and like, why are mammals called mammals? Well, because there are, there were debates among midwives at the time and, Carl Linnaeus, the father of modern taxonomy, decided that he was going to call us mammals because he was shutting down the midwives. Like he was a scientist, he was a man, he had the answer. You know, so anyway, so it, it just like, it, it seems like this weird stream of coincidences where it's like, those things couldn't possibly be connected. And you're like, well, but they are. And yet we have this diagnostic test today that seems like it should be pretty objective, right? Like surely it's objective, right? <laughs> Right. So this, you know, podcast that I'm doing um, is about the connections and conversations that we're able to have as humans that like help us get through dark times and get through the world as it is right now, which it's, you know, <laughs> it's a thing. Um, so wondering for you, um, as a person, who are, or what are those things and those people that help you to like, realize that oh, the world doesn't just suck and it's not all just bad. Absolutely. Yes. I, I have loved hearing all of the answers to this question that have mm -hmm. come from all of your incredible guests so far. And Again, I'm just so flattered and honored to be part of their part of their company. Oh. Um, there are, as always, too many people to to name in that list. We'd be here for another another whole hour. Um, but I have, you know, I the people who help me break through the dark are my my fellow questioners and troublemakers. You know, mm -hmm. the people who want to ask the questions that people are telling us not to ask, you know, whether that's my, um, whether that's chosen family, whether that's my colleagues and comrades in uh, organizing work or in um, intellectual work that I'm doing both at my university, at 
intellectual institute or like academic institutions generally, or whether that's um, through different kinds of collaborations and connections that uh, I am able to, to make in other ways as well. Um, friends, colleagues, collaborators in Singapore and around the world, um, being able to reconnect with my given family as well. There's just, you know, there, I'm able to find joy and light in all parts of my life in some way. And I truly feel just so lucky to be able to say that, that mm. it's not that everything is good everywhere all the time. It's that every part of my life has those people. Mm. Yeah, that that's really good. I'm really happy to hear that. Thank you for being here and catching up and who even knows what we talked about for this hour. Good to, good to see you. Good to talk to you and love you and all that. Yeah, likewise. I, I look forward to, to listening and remembering what, what we talked about as well. <laughs> good to see you. Love you, Haven. Love you too. Thank you so much for joining me this time on How the Light Gets In. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. And if you can, take care of each other.